Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. Keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 52. And you're going to need your Bible. We're going to be all over the place this morning uh, so that we can get an understanding of what it is that Isaiah was alluding to and pointing to in that passage that we just read. We're continuing our study in Isaiah uh, and following the theme of messianic hope through that entirety of the book, the hope of Israel uh, that is placed in God, who is seen as our king, the, the God king, the one who rules over Israel who would come as a king, but also as a suffering servant, and the one who would come as a conqueror. Now, the book of Isaiah is not meant to be read as some ancient historical text written by the Jews, but it is a Christian text. It is a text that was written as the New Testament, as Paul says, for our instruction, uh, because it is in that instruction that we see examples of how we are to trust God, we're to believe in his promises, we're to listen to his warnings. Uh, we are to gain encouragement from what has already been fulfilled and hope and what is yet to come. So part one of our study is going to be a look at, at that messianic hope, that God as our king uh, theme. And we're seeking to answer the question, was, what is the good news? That's the central message of Isaiah. It's this good news. There's good news, Israel. There's good news, church of God, people of God. Uh, and what is the good news in the fact that God is our king? That's the the question that we want to answer. And why is it good news specifically that Jesus Christ, who was the promised Messiah to come, why is it good news that he specifically is our God and our King? Last week we took a look at Isaiah 6 and we were in the throne room of God where the holy King of Israel presents a case before his people. He is the transcendent, holy God of Israel. He is both gracious and just. He is Israel's true King. And he sends Isaiah to set a case before his people, letting them know that they have made themselves essentially indistinguishable from the world around them. They are no different than the world. They are full of both the world and they are full of themselves. They have abandoned God and they have abandoned their role in the world to be a messenger for God. Now at this point in Isaiah 52, uh, in Isaiah's ministry, uh, there's much despair among the people of God. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, uh, they say, Our way is hidden from the Lord. My claim or my cause is disregarded and ignored by our God. They have felt the disregard in the fact that God has expelled them out of the land. At this point in the the book, uh, the people have been expelled. Both Israel and Judah have been sent out. They are under the reign of other kingdoms. And they have every reason, circumstantially, to believe that God has abandoned them. They have every reason to look around and say, we're no longer living in our land, our cities are ruined, Uh, our fields are destroyed, our our families are displaced, our people are enslaved. Has God forgotten us? And amid the wilderness, which is a theme throughout the book of Isaiah, they are in the wilderness, they are looking for Zion, they are looking for the return of their king. God is making an announcement. He is sending messages of comfort to his people saying, even though I have brought this case against you and I've judged you, 
I've judged you for a purpose. And there's great comfort coming because I will renew Zion. I will renew my people. I will rebuild the cities that have been destroyed. And if we were to ask ourselves, how often do we often feel like sometimes God has forgotten us? Or maybe we know someone who struggles with constant despair of the state of their life or their circumstances. Cities are ruined. Families are disintegrated. Loved ones are displaced. We live in a world where the promises of the Enlightenment and modernity and sweeping social reforms have fallen short of producing what they said would be the ascendancy of all mankind, that we would eventually hit this pinnacle of the perfection of mankind and no one would be in poverty any longer and, and all of the ills of society would be fixed. But yet we live in a time when people are still looking for comfort, still looking for hope, still in despair, still discouraged about a future that they don't believe is bright. And so when we read the book of Isaiah, we read about a people who are in the same circumstances, that they too were in despair. And God, as we said, still speaks to us today. He offers us comfort. But he also offers us warning. He offers us warning so that we might be comforted that if we trust him, then we will find comfort in his salvation. I don't know if uh, you um, missed it this week, but this week was the national test of the, the broadcasting. Did you get a beep on your phone? And pretty much like many of you, I summarily was like, that's annoying, and I swiped it up, and it was done. To which later I thought, well, that wasn't very effective, was it? <laughs> I just didn't care. I'm like, this could be real or not. I don't know. It's like, this, it's a green light. I got to go. That warning is not a warning simply for warning's sake. It is a warning so that I might respond, that we might respond, that if in a case of danger, we have the opportunity to respond. Andrew Abernathy notes that in these scenes of Isaiah, these poems, these these warnings, it is similar to the scenes in movies where we hear the music that brings comfort to those who are in the midst of despair. I, I recently watched Quiet Place, A Quiet Place. And in, in A Quiet Place Part 2, it's, it's this dystopic, uh, uh, futuristic uh, story about how extraterrestrials have come and they're eating humanity. They're eating them. And the way that they find humans is they, they listen and they hear. And so you have to walk quietly. It is it is a disturbing film. It gets you on your edge. You, you watch these people try to live a normal life in the midst of ruin and despair and danger. And in the second movie, there is a scene where they hear Bobby Darren's Over the Sea. It's an old hymn, uh, not an old hymn, it's an old song uh, that was popular in World War II. Uh, it's this sound, and they heard it was a message. It was a, it was a message broadcast over the radio that there was hope to be found. And in the same way, God is speaking to his people. A king is coming. And he speaks in his scripture, and we read in the New Testament that a king has come. And then we are promised that a king will come again, and his name is Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at this saving king. We looked last week at the, the holy transcendent king of Israel, the holy one on the throne, God himself as our king. And this morning, I want to answer the question, why is it good news that he is, he is our king? He's not only a holy transcendent king, which we need. We need a transcendent king. We need someone above mankind. We need to be oriented to the truth that there is a God who created us, and we are not gods ourselves. But he is also 
good news, a saving king. So, first, if you're taking notes, here's our outline this morning. One, we're going to look at the promise and prophecy of the saving king that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the reason we need to look at that is because we need to know that what God has said would happen, happened. And therefore, when we see the warnings in Isaiah and appointing to that future horizon of what will come for all of mankind that has not yet come, we need to believe God at his word because of Jesus Christ. The promise of a, of a of saving king has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we need to take warning. Two, that what is it that the saving king has saved us from? The saving king has saved us and will save us and can save us from unbelief. He saves us from God's vengeance, his anger against unbelief. Three, for those who trust in God, the saving king saves us through judgment and he saves us for gladness and glory. We are saved for gladness and glory. Gladness and glory. And finally, for good news, Jesus Christ is the saving king. He is good news. That is who we proclaim. It is who Isaiah proclaimed. It is who God proclaimed. And it is who our saving king is. First, the promise and prophecy of the saving king has been fulfilled already in Jesus Christ. Historically, uh, the Jews returned from their exile during the Persian era. The hope of God's comforting return, however, did not fully materialize. If you're familiar with the Bible or historically, uh, the prophecy was that the, the Jews who had been expelled by the Babylonians and the Assyrians would eventually make it back to the land. And, and Isaiah said, there's a man named Cyrus who will come and he will send you back. Sure enough, Cyrus came to power and he sent them back. But not all of them. Some of them stayed, some of them went. Ezekiel and Nehemiah and Ezra these are all the prophets, these are all the men that went and proclaimed and prophesied that God wanted to rebuild his temple. And so they rebuilt the temple, but they didn't all come back. And then Zechariah, a post-exilic prophet, meaning that when everyone was out of Babylon and out of Assyria and, and they were back in the land partially, Zechariah, who was a prophet, a word from God, reorients their hope and says, your hope is not to be in this particular time period, but in a future time. When the saving king will come, there will be a time when God's glory will be in the midst of Jerusalem. He will come back, and God again will dwell there. And when he, come, when he comes, that king will reign over the entire earth. And so since that day, they have been looking for that king. Enter Jesus and the one who prepared his way. We read verse uh, chapter 52 of Isaiah because, and we'll look at this really briefly soon, that it's connected to chapter 40. And it's connected to chapter 40 because that's where we hear that a voice, a wilderness, this sound, this broadcast signal is going over the airwaves and is saying he's going to come. He's going to come. There will be a voice to prepare the way of the Lord. It will be the Lord himself. It begins to be proclaimed and echoed all through the scriptures so that his people would gather hope. But in the day of Jesus Christ, they were looking for that king. They're under Roman rule. And Jesus comes and he says, I am that king. We need to understand that God's prophetic word, here's the thing, God's word and his prophecy and our trusting in him is all dependent upon whether or not his word comes true. God's word about himself is dependent upon predictive 
prophecy. That from the beginning, God said to Eve, though you have fallen, there will come one. Genesis 3.15. His heel will be struck, but he will crush the serpent's head. Abraham, you will have a son, and this son will be the one born of you and Sarai. No, it's not true. No, it will happen. Sure enough, it happens. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. Israel becomes land. My people have been enslaved in Egypt. I will rescue them. That's impossible. They are rescued. Moses says, I will raise up a prophet for you through Moses. Moses is raised up. He leads them out. He sends a prophet. He, he predicts everything, and it comes to pass. He is the only God who says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, and then it happens. In fact, he calls out the other gods in chapter 41, verse 21. He says, tell you what, gods of the Hittites, gods of the Edomites, gods of the Assyrians, you tell me what's going to happen. Speak up. Tell me what will happen in the future, and then we will follow you. Silence, because they can't. Our God is the only God. Israel's God is the only God who says, here is what will happen. And then it happens. The king will come to Jerusalem and his glory will dwell. And that is why the Jews kept Isaiah as a book because they're like, well, he was right. He called Cyrus. He called the exile. He called the return. He called this, that, and the other thing. We keep this book because God has promised us. Then, sure enough, who comes and says that he is John 1. In the beginning came the Word of God. And the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, John 1.14. And then John the evangelist, John the gospel writer, says that John the Baptist comes and says what? John 1.23, John says, I am that one. This is where Isaiah is quoted over and over and over again. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'll just quickly give you some verses. You can highlight them, circle them. But this is where I said that most of the New Testament is prophesied by Isaiah. And that's why the New Testament writers and Jesus himself says, read Isaiah, read Isaiah, 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 whatever you want to say. But John says, I am the voice of one crying, the Baptist. I am the one in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah the prophet said, Matthew 3, 1 through 4, he sets it up and says that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. A voice of one crying, Isaiah says, in the wilderness will say, behold your God. And it is specifically to Judea, to Judah. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. How has the kingdom of heaven come near? Well, the king is there. The opportunity to trust the king, the saving king, is here. Jesus is the one who came. Matthew says, verse 3, he is the one spoken of through the prophet, where? Isaiah. Matthew chapter 4, just go down a little bit. John had been arrested and Jesus intentionally went to Galilee and he left Nazareth and he goes to Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? Because Isaiah said he will speak good news to that region. The kingdom of heaven came near. Jesus preaches in the very land and the area that the God of Israel said, I'm going to restore this area. Now, what's fascinating is that Jews knew the passages of Scripture. They knew Isaiah back and front, front and back. They knew it. And it is mind-blowing that's why Jesus would often point to Isaiah. That's why all the gospel writers write about Isaiah because 
the Jews of all people should know. He's the prince of prophets. Isaiah is the George Washington on the Mount Rushmore of the Jewish prophecy. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them, the major prophets, the minor prophets. Isaiah was the one they read the most. And yet, as Jesus intentionally does what Isaiah said he would do, they were unable to believe him or would not believe him. They had much unbelief. Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Matthew, Mark, it's a right-hand turn. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He points to Isaiah. Keep going to Luke chapter 3, verse 2 through 6. Luke records, says that God's word came, chapter 2, I mean chapter 3, verse 2. God's word came to the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of Isaiah. All of the New Testament writers believed that Isaiah was pointing to Jesus. And Jesus said, Isaiah was pointing to me. And as he looked back, Jesus said, everything in the law and the prophets points to me. And then starting with the Old Testament scripture, he says, God was speaking about me. Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, he is quoting Isaiah 52, verse 7. If you want to turn there or turn there later, you may right now. Romans 10, 14, he says, how then, Paul speaking about those who have not yet believed, how can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and here's where he Quotes Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Not all believe this. Not all believe the gospel. Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52 serves two functions. It provides confirmation of the necessary role of preaching and proclamation of hearing the word of God. But it also implicitly suggests that the condition for our salvation is belief in what God has said, which is the primary thing that Israel would not do. They would not believe that God would save them, and so therefore they would not remain where God had placed them. They would be sent out so they might learn to trust him. So the saving king, Jesus, is fulfilling everything that was pointing to him in Isaiah, that the one would come and it would be good news of peace and of good things, of salvation. And their God, their king, came in the form of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ came. And so the promise was fulfilled. So now we have to ask ourselves, what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came for a purpose. He came to save his church. He came to save his people. What do his people do? His people trust in God's word. They trust in him. So what must we do? We must trust what God says about what we're in danger of. What is it that we're in danger? What do we need saving from? Point number two, the saving king comes to save his people from unbelief. The comfort call that a saving king is coming in Isaiah 52, how beautiful this message is, is first sounded in Isaiah 35. Turn with me really quickly to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, make a left-hand turn from Isaiah 52. 
There are three major divisions within Isaiah, 1 through 39. That's a bleak section of Isaiah. You're depressed after that. Then in 40 through 55 is another section that is in a different time period. The first period of Isaiah is the Babylonians are coming. The Babylonians come, then, oh, you're expelled, the Assyrians clean house, now you're exiled from the land. And then the final section is 56 through 66, where they begin to return, but Isaiah is saying there is a future glory coming. And Isaiah 66, the book ends with how glorious the kingdom of Israel will be. There is a synchronic flow. There's a historical flow to Isaiah. It's, it's, it's compiled that way. In chapter 35, we see two ways in which two types of people will live and two destinies of those lives. 34 is actually connected to 35. Isaiah 35 is set up. Isaiah wrote this in a time in the Assyrian area, and the Assyrians judge Israel, and it's an attempt to wake them up out of their stupor, to, to, to trust God. It is, a, it is about faith in God's promises. Chapter 35, verse 1 says, the wilderness and the dry land will be, will be, will be glad. That's the start of a promise. They are living in a wilderness and dry land. But 35 is about the promise of what will come and a rescue out of where they're at. But you can't understand 35 unless you understand 34. And so 34 is a picture of what it is to live in unbelief. Look back with me briefly with 34. 34 is, if you have a title, it probably says the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations. The Lord says, you nations, come here and listen. Nations and peoples are the same. It is, it is a broad spectrum of every tongue, tribe, and nation. God calls the earth to hear what he's about to say. He calls them as witnesses to what he is about to say. He says, Isaiah, the Lord is heated. That word angry there is it's heated. He has wrath. Whenever we get angry, what happens to our face? Our blood starts to boil and we get angry. We hold it in. This is the same language. The Lord is angry with the nations. He is furious with all of their armies. And he will set apart for the nations. He will set apart all of the nations that which is his. This language here of destruction set apart is the same language we have for holiness, set apart. God owns the nations. Remember in Isaiah 6, his train fills what? The entire throne room. His feet touch the glory of his creation. There is nowhere he is not above. That includes every people, every nation. And so 34, Isaiah says, the Lord is angry. What will happen to them? He will set them apart. He will give them over to destruction. He gives them an image, verse 3, of what they know about warfare. Corpses will be rotting in the sun. There will be mountains of blood. This is an imagery of warfare. It is the worst of what they have seen and know. The nations know about warfare. God's judgment is coming against the nations and against the peoples. Why? Because of their unbelief. Israel is the same as the world God says. Remember, the case laid out before them is, you have not believed me. So the end of unbelief, there are only two ways to live. You either believe God or you don't believe God. You believe his word, you trust him, or you don't trust him. 
And so the end of those who will not believe is laid out in 34. God's judgment is coming. Where will it be, the judgment? It is cosmic. Look at verse 4. All of the stars will dissolve. The sky will roll up. This judgment is coming, and it is expansive over all of the universe. Sin has affected the entirety of mankind and the entirety of the cosmos. In verse 5, he mentions the people of Edom. The Edomites, there's a map up here, and the Edomites lived to the southeast of Israel, and the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Jacob and Esau were brothers. Esau hated Jacob, and they split. And as Israel came back into the land, the Edomites were against the Israelites. Edom is a picture. It is a representation of all of the people who are against God's people. Edom, just like Zion or Jerusalem, representing God's people, the Edomites, Edom represents the enemies of God's people. He has set the enemies of God and God's people for destruction. In verse 6, there's imagery of sword, the Lord's sword. It is him. It is covered with blood, and it is covered with the fat of of lambs and goats, the blood of lambs of goats. This is a picture of sacrificial worship. This is what necessarily needed to happen to atone for sin. He is saying that these people must atone for their sin. And just as the blood and the fat and the kidneys of rams and goats and lambs that Israel was to offer up for the atonement of their sins, so also the nations will be offered up. The nations who do not believe God. The nations who shun at the Holy One of Israel being their God. Israel, God's own people who reject the king. This is the end of unbelief. Verse 8, there is a day of vengeance. The Lord has a day of vengeance. There is a fixed time when God will send his judgment against a people who will not believe him. What will happen to it? Verse 9, Edom, again, this is the location. Edom, the people, the nations that do not believe the entire creation, where Edom lives, where the people of unbelief, their streams will be turned into pitch. Her soil turned into sulfur. Her land will become a burning pitch. I don't know if you've ever been to Yellowstone and you've seen uh, the great pools of hot springs. If you've ever been there, you can feel the heat emanating up off of the ground. You see these signs everywhere that says, do not venture off the path because you could fall in and boil to death. You would immediately die in these hot pools. So also this is a picture of stench, of tar, of pitch. It is hot, it is barren, it is desolate. In verse 10 it says that the smoke will never go out. It will be desolate from generation to generation. No one, no person will pass. It will be uninhabitable. Animals will live there. People will not. The Lord will stretch out, verse 11, a measuring line. He will bring chaos and destruction to it. It is the same language that God says in Genesis that man was to bring order to that which was chaotic. The earth was void and it was chaotic. This is a land of chaos, purposelessness. There is no place for respite or rest. And it will last for generation upon generation upon generation Verse 17, they will possess it. The unbelievers, Edomites, will possess it. The enemies of God's people, the enemies of God will possess it forever. And they will dwell in it 
from generation to generation. The warning of God to Israel, to his own people, is you have been indistinguishable from the world of unbelief around you. And the way of unbelief is destruction because you are enemies of me. I am the holy, righteous God. I have created you. You are mine. And yet you fail to trust me. Jesus cries out, repent, because it is a failure to trust God. He cries out and says, do not trust in your own way. I am the way. I am the way back to the life of God. I am the one who has come to save you from the day of vengeance. Repent. There is a day. Isaiah 34 sets you up for 35 and answers the question, why is it good news that the saving king has come? Well, if it is true that the promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his warnings of repentance are not heeded, then you must know that the Lord brings both redemption, a people are going to be redeemed. That redemption there, the, the language of the people who are redeemed, chapter 35, the people who are heading towards Zion, the people who are in the wilderness, look at verse 1, chapter 35. The dry land will be what? Glad. It is the exact opposite. The desert will rejoice and blossom. They will rejoice. There will be joy. There will be splendor. Weak knees will be strengthened. Verse 3, the cowardly can be strong. They will not have any more fear. Verse 4 says, here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. But what will he do? He will, are you looking at the text? He will save you. From what? He will save you from unbelief and believing that God does not fulfill his promises. If God says that he is bringing vengeance, he will bring vengeance. But Peter says he is not slow in keeping his promises, but he wants everyone to repent. He does not want it. God does not step or lead forward with the vengeance card. He is always leading with the, will you listen to me card? Do you remember Genesis as they sinned? What do they do? They hide, but, but God says what? He says, where are you? What have you done? And then he clothes them. God's leading is never just straight drop the hammer. God's leading is, will you listen to me? Will you trust me? The way of unbelief Isaiah is speaking in verse 34 leads to a land that is dry, it is wild, and it will receive the vengeance of the Lord. But the, the promise of the saving king in verse 30, chapter 35 is that they will return. There's poetry there in verses 6, 7, and 8, and 35. The lame will leap, the tongue of the mute will sing, water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. If you've been following Jesus for some time, do you hear him speaking? Out of you will stream what? Rivers of living water. The lame tell John the Baptist, the one, the voice, are you, John says, are you the one? Even he can't. John says, Jesus, listen, I'm in prison here. I thought you were the king. I just want to know quickly, are you the one? And Jesus says, tell John, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. He points back to Isaiah, he says, I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the one that's going to bring comfort. Isaiah 40, turn really quickly with me to 40. And it wraps up really quickly because if the point isn't clear yet, it will be. 40, 
chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, what does he says? God speaks in the time when they are in despair. They are out of the land. He says, Isaiah says, I've spoken to God. Here's what he says. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to her. Announce to her that her time of labor is over. A voice of one crying out, there will prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Israel, you're living in the wilderness now, but comfort is coming. Cry out. Know that my word is going to come true. Some of you are familiar. It's an incredible passage of comfort and, and of hope. The grass withers, chapter 40, verse 8. The flowers fade, but what? The word of our Lord remains forever. Church, God's word remains forever. Nothing will shift it. It does not change. His cries of warning and his cries of desire to offer grace are still offered today. Jesus Christ comes and he proclaims that he is the one in which chapter 52 is speaking of. That's why Paul points to this and says how beautiful it is that heralds, proclaimers, with joy about joyous things, proclaim what? Peace. Good news, salvation, who says to Zion, the people of God, your God reigns. How does God reigns? How does God reign? God reigns in the person of Jesus Christ. Point number four, Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the good news. Point number three, which I skipped over, was that he saves us towards gladness and glory. He saves us so that we might be glad from what he has saved us from. Friends, if this morning you have trusted Christ Jesus as the saving king sent by God, you have been like what he called Israel to be, which is a people who trust him at his word. The works of faith, John says, are to believe the son. And when we believe in the son, when we look to him and know that he is the one who paid every single debt of ours, he is the one who, if you trust in him, the vengeance that is coming has passed over you. That's how that works. Jesus, the Son of God, the suffering servant, the promised one, has received all the vengeance that was yours in unbelief. But when you believe in Christ, when you look to him and say that he is the one, he is the Savior, he is the one that will save you, he is the covenant-keeping Israel, all of the promises of God to Israel entrusting him and living for him are in Jesus Christ. And when you look to him and say, he is my atonement for my sin, then God says, the vengeance that is promised that will come, you will never experience. You will only enter into the welfare and the glory, which is yet to come. The king is coming back. How do we know? Because he said so. He was resurrected from the dead. He received the due penalty of our sin. And when we look to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he is the saving king who saves us from vengeance to come. The gospel is not religion preached. The gospel is not, hey, good news. I've got a new list for you to follow. The gospel is Jesus. He is the saving king. He is the one who absorbs the vengeance of God for our unbelief. But when we believe that Jesus is the king and the one that God has sent, the people of God, Zion, Jerusalem, the church, true Israel, trusting in Christ, 
their king, their God, will be saved from unbelief. And they will enter his glory and his gladness forever. The picture of eternity is one of just unimaginable goodness and glory. It will be a creation restored. Isaiah points to a creation. John points to a creation. And rather, a new heavens, a new earth. Wine flowing like the salmon of Capistrano. I, was, I thought I would get a laugh at that. I thought, but there should be joy. That laughter, that is the laughter. That is, that is the herald bringing good news. And the laughter is a, what people laugh. They laugh with joy that God has saved them. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q dot org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.